0: You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 18. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Ruben Naha, who is a professional portrait and landscape photographer in Texas. He was also a full-time professor of photography with the Art Institute, my alma mater, and he is still also teaching with one of the local universities in San Antonio. So he will be joining us on the line in just a moment. For episode 18. are listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 18. In this week's interview, I will be speaking with Ruben Naha, who is a professional portrait and landscape photographer in the San Antonio, Texas area. I usually try to prepare a few questions ahead of time to ask my interviewees, but it's been kind of a hectic week this week, and I didn't really get the opportunity to, so I informed Ruben before I did the intro that We'll be kind of flying by the seat of our pants this time, so we will see how things go. Hey, Reuben, I'm back on the line with you. How are you doing? Are you there?
1: Yeah, can you hear me?
0: Yep, there we go. Sorry about that. Some sort of technical hiccup. I've never had that happen before. So how are you doing? Uh, i I'm doing good
1: I'm doing
0: good 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 so I was telling the listeners that as you had informed me you work mostly in portraiture and landscape right now and I wanted to know first of all could you give my listeners a little bit more of your background in photography how you got started in photography
1: yeah sure I uh... (laughs) it's a long story but yeah Uh, I started in photography mainly actually i was an ag major agricultural major uh when i first started college my father had a ranch here in south texas and so it was just sort of the, the plan to take over the ranch and so i went to school to study about that and, and uh i think about my third year I, I met a a girl that was taking a and she was an art major, so I, I stopped in and took the uh, photography class so we could uh, be together for that class. And, and it just seemed, uh, I got a, you know, I got a be in the class, so I was, I was pretty excited about that. And so I, I thought, you know, this is something that's kind of interesting, and she likes it and I like it, so I, I just sort of pursued that. And um, I, I ended up, moving to uh, we her and I went to New York after, after I, never, I didn't graduate uh, at that time but we went to New York uh, on a trip and uh, I thought that you know, the first time I'd actually been out of out of the state of Texas or out of um, to New York anyway and uh, it was fascinating and uh, she and I broke up and I, I stayed on in New York for a little while and I I met a guy who was uh, from Texas, not too far from where I'm from. And so he was working in a, in a fashion studio, and, and I was about to run out of money. And so he offered me a, a job in the studio, and I, I took it, and by uh, that, I, I, I never went back home. And I just started this, and I, I, I worked In the the studio for about six years, and then um, that guy and I moved to Minneapolis uh, at the time, because it was sort of this up-and-coming artist creative place. And we moved there and got a got a big space, and and sort of rode the wave of Minneapolis as it came into more of uh, an artist. place to, to live and rent was cheap and it was sort of New York of the 60s in, in Minneapolis at that time because there was a lot of warehouses and uh, the, the rent was cheap and there weren't you know, a whole lot of other artists around. And I stayed in Minneapolis uh, for about 15, 18 years, something like that and uh, um, <laughs> met another girl that I ended up marrying, and we had a daughter, and um, she was from Texas. So we decided to move back to Texas. And, uh, you know, and then at that time, San Antonio was sort of uh, a sleepy little town, and, and sort of on the cusp of, of being a bigger, better city. And so I was able to come here and, and play Easier to get established, and I already I already have a, a pretty good portfolio going. I you know I, I like San Antonio, and I stayed here, and, and uh, just sort of started working my way around around here, and I I was able to go back to Minneapolis and go back to New York and do some other work, and so it turned out to be a, you know, a pretty interesting place to, to be at the time. And outside San Antonio you know. The, huge city and lots of new hipster moving into the city and the whole place is changing uh, again. So it's kind of an exciting time to be around here. But that's basically you know how I how I got involved in photography. And uh, eventually I went back and got my art degree and went to graduate school. Uh, but uh, you know it's a sort of what I am saying here. You, you don't. You're not thinking about it. It just sort of picks up on you. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of hard work. i actually say that I haven't
0: enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, when you left Texas uh, the first time and went to New York, did that cause any kind of tension with your family because you didn't stay there to, <laughs> to take over the ranch, yeah. I can imagine? Yeah, yeah.
1: That was, that was uh, a pretty wild time. But uh, my father cut me off, you know, from any money that I might have been, been receiving and, you know, he was pretty pissed off. He's it, it, had that ranch for a long time and it was a big investment and, and I just, you know, as, as much as I liked. I went to college without a rodeo scholarship, so it was something I, I knew a lot about and, and I, you know, I thought I'd need a rodeo but, Rest of my life where I'd be down that ranch, and it just—I don't know. Once I once I saw something different, uh, and you know, it just felt felt more comfortable to me than, than the ranch. And, and during those times I was in New York, I would you know, I would go back home, and, and I think my father eventually understood, and he you know, he was okay with it towards the end. And then you know, he ended up selling the ranch anyway, and my mother. Well, my mother was pretty comfortable through the rest of her life, so you know, it wasn't all that that bad of a deal after all.
0: Well, that's good. I'm glad that uh, you know over time you guys were able to to smooth things over so that you had a good relationship again. And I was yeah. gonna, I was yeah. going to ask you if the ranch was still in the family, but you already answered that one. No. So. <laughs> yeah, no. And you don't yeah, have yeah. You, you don't have to worry about anything being a long story. the The interview episodes I like to be longer format, usually an hour. When I did my interview with Jill, we went for just about an hour and forty minutes. So <laughs> that's not a problem oh, cool. there. Yep, you can take all the time you need to to uh, to talk. Uh, now I'm assuming, and I could be wrong because I know you're a few years younger than I am, that uh, that when you first got into photography, you were shooting film, of course, like I was.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: What was the uh, what was one of the first film cameras that you used?
1: The very first film camera that I used for that course that I took in uh, in college was a Canon FTB, and uh, I bought it at this camera store in Austin. And I, uh, I never, I I have some some cameras that my parents use, some old uh, brownies. Those kind of cameras, but this was the first camera of 35 the, uh, uh, I don't want to say DHL, but the first uh, film camera that I've ever, ever had, and uh, so I, I really did, and I went out and, and I had this uh, mobile home that I was living on, on the Sky's property, and, and outside of uh, San Marcos where the college was, and I put uh, once I got that part that course and really got enthused about it. I, I had up started buying a, a larger sink and I made this spare bedroom into a into a dark room, and I just really enjoyed that a lot. Over the next you know, 20, 30 years or so, 20 years I guess, you know, I, I'd always had a dark room. I always had access to a dark room and. and it was just something I really, really enjoyed. And I was very slow, I guess you could say, in getting into the digital. Uh, you know, I tried it a few times with some of those little smaller cameras, and I was pretty excited to see the image right away, but it just wasn't the same. And wasn't wasn't really enough hands on for me to really embrace it totally. But the then people that I was working for uh, during work for were, you know, headed in that direction. So I needed to uh, you know, sort of adapt and, and figure out how to, how to work in a digital world.
0: Oh, yeah. And uh, I believe even to this day you still shoot a, a bit of film on occasion, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I do a lot. I, I used to do a lot of pinhole. And uh, when I was in graduate school, I lived by the ocean, and, and I had a a, a uh, holding 120 pinhole camera. And so I shot uh, 120 film with that pinhole, and, and that was really uh, uh, something I enjoyed a lot. I had a couple of nice shows with things that I do. Uh, I, I, you know, I used to be... a you know, there was a half a dozen labs here in town that you could drop off the film to if you didn't have a dark room and now I I think there might be one or might not even be one, you might have to just send it all off, you know, be the mail, I don't know. But, uh, so I haven't really shot a lot of film lately. I've, I've got a big box or two in the freezer I should probably break out and start doing something with but I try to. I have taught darkroom at this at this university that I work at. Uh, they have a photo sort of one course. It's a darkroom course, and those for some reason uh, those classes fill up quickest of all the photography classes. People that you know just taking photography for an art elective will will take those darkroom classes, and it's just you know, it's just amazing when they to watch those faces when they see the prints coming up in the developer or. Or see the negative. You know, a lot of times when they develop the film, it's all blank, and so then you see a lot of disappointment. But you know, when they finally figure it out, and they they see the negative and they see some little images on there. Oh man, it's like Christmas! <laughs> so you know, that's kind of fun. And I and I can still do you know, if I wanted to, I could still work in that dark room. But uh, it's never really. <laughs> Had the urge to do that as much lately, but I don't know. I'm thinking about breaking out the four by five and maybe doing something here just to change
0: things up. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, I I did some uh, developing in high school. I developed some of my own film because I was in the camera club at my high school uh, for the four years I went to high school. And and yeah, the first time you know you're developing the film, your own film, it's kind of exciting. Um, you feel like a little kid, you know, watching this quote-unquote magic happen. But yeah. <laughs> but then, over, yeah. you know, over time, I, I got into the world of digital photography. And um, uh, actually, the first, I think the, if I remember right, the first digital camera I had was a Sony Mavica. One of the ones that took the floppy disks.
1: Oh, and, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, you put the three and a half inch hard floppy disk in the side of it. And that's what it records your images to. It was kind of slow. You know, of course, being we, yeah. it was a floppy drive, it wasn't anything as as fast as what we have now <laughs> with SD cards and CF cards and all that good stuff. But uh, I remember that now. Yeah, my uh, yeah. One of the first cameras I ever played with was an old Kodak Instamatic. I can't even remember now which model it was. It was a little uh, square camera. It was brown with like silver bands, and it took uh, 110 film. It was one of the ones my. Uh, my uncle had when I was about four or five years old, he gave it to me to play with when he got a new camera, a uh, film camera, he got a Yashica and he let me play with the Kodak. And when I got a little bit older, so I had a better understanding of how to actually use the camera for a while. It was just a play toy, but um, then I would buy yeah. one, I would buy one ten film and I would just go around. Uh, Cause I'm from out in the country in Pennsylvania, Northeastern Pennsylvania. So it was all farm country where I grew up and. I you know I'd go out and take photographs of the pastures and, and go up to Mount Pisgah and, and shoot some sunrise and sunset stuff on occasion stuff like that um, and then like I said once the digital came out and I started moving towards digital cameras I, I still like film and there's just something about it but I just don't I don't dabble in it anymore to be honest uh, I as you I'm sure you're aware because I post the pictures on Facebook from time to time I have quite a collection of film cameras uh antique and vintage film cameras I, I go to local antique malls and when I find one I'll I'll snatch it up to add to my collection I've got some brownies here and Yashikas and Pentax and some others and uh, Minoltas and I just collect them now I don't they're all functioning cameras I just I don't have, I don't have the desire to buy film and shoot film anymore and then it's Being, it's getting harder and harder to find places that develop film. Of course, the cost goes up. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, it's just too much expense these days. So I just stick with the digital side of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I remember when I was working, started working here in San Antonio commercially, I bought a a Pentax 6x7 camera. Uh, took 120 film but it was shaped like a like a 35 like a 35 camera but it was huge and and i just i, I love those cameras, i had like two or three of them and i, I just i had big hands and they were big cameras and that big all the lenses were super sized <laughs> and they were, they were, and and i had buddies that were shooting the house about and and those are so a nice, refined, sophisticated-looking camera and I had this great big hunk of a camera, but I really loved those cameras. The lenses were sharp, and the negative was big, and um, I would just kick myself for switching gears and then just shelling stuff off like that, but those were, you know, those were fun times, but, you know, it was. It was a lot, more, a lot easier when I had a studio and my studio had a dark room where I could shoot and I could just go in there right away, play around. And so, you know, Nowadays, I, uh, I, I I, think about it, but I'm slow to act on it. Just, you know, I've got the film and I think, well, maybe I should do something with that just to see. But I think I'm just lazy in order to stand around and develop a film. And, and have to make print i'm pretty sure my print making skills have deteriorated to the point where it would be hard I would just say you know, I would just end up scanning the negatives i probably put it in a big list. It's probably what I'd end up doing
0: yeah I know that's what a lot of people do these days that that do still shoot film on occasion they you know they develop the negatives and then they just scan them in and and turn them into digital and then they can touch them up in lightroom and Photoshop and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, one of my friends, um, he was a coworker from one of my jobs a few years back, Tim Weaver, and uh he lives in Arizona, Phoenix area, I believe, and he still likes to shoot film. He's got digital cameras, but he loves film and he develops his own film. He has a dark room at his house and and he still gets into it. As a matter of fact, anytime I post one of my and my film cameras from my collection, he's always messaging me, and he's like, man, if you're not going to run th- film through that thing, send it to me, I'll use it, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not going to run film through it, but I'm not going to give them to you, because I like to collect them, I just, I think, I, I've always been a technology person, you know, I work in IT as well as doing, currently doing full-time real estate photography, and I've always been a technology person, and I, I love the new stuff, but I also love the old stuff, so, uh, as a matter yeah, of Yeah, and one of my friends posted on uh, Facebook earlier today a list of uh, the five things that said that people no longer have in their homes, DVDs, CDs, and I can't remember what the other three items were. And they said, comment back if you actually still have one of these items. And I'm like, I have all five. And one of my other (laughs) friends is like, really? As big a tech nerd as you are, you still got all that old obsolete stuff? And I'm like, hey, I like old tech. I
1: like new tech both. So... (laughs) Yeah. I like... like new tech but it's hard to keep up with it all yeah. As soon as I figure out one, how to do one thing it's maybe two or three new versions already come out and so I try to just maintain what I know and add to that in bits and pieces so I don't get overwhelmed.
0: Oh yeah absolutely and, and the problem is technology changes so fast because for many years um, I would do what they call white box PCs. I would build my own computers. I'd go to a, a place where I could buy the motherboard and the CPU and memory and all the other components. And I would build a, a complete system myself because that way I got what I wanted. You know, I didn't have to go, yeah. I didn't have to go to Dell or gateway or whoever and get a system from them and pay way more than was worth it to get a mediocre system. I could build it myself and, and have a more high end system. And yeah, it still wasn't cheap, but if you're cutting out the manufacturing cost, that saves you some money there. So I would buy the components and then just build the whole system myself. And I did that for a long time. But you know, technology was changing so fast that it would seem like you know uh, the latest CPU today would be obsolete in six months. So it was just crazy. It was a never-ending battle of keeping everything upgraded, you know, technology-wise, because it was just changing so fast. And it's been that way with the digital cameras too but i think i think it's kind of tapering off a little bit more now although now everybody's shifting into the world of mirrorless full frame cameras so then you got the new yeah. you got the mirrorless camera wars going on you know with everybody trying to outdo each other and canon and nikon you know were tardy to the party so to speak you know cause uh, sony's been dominating in the in the mirrorless full frame cameras but Now that Nikon and Canon have got their hat in the ring, I don't think, especially Canon, I don't think it's going to take them long to catch up with Sony. And, and, you know, and and Sony fanboys tell me I'm crazy, but it's like, well, look at it logically. Nikon, not so much, but Canon and Sony both are heavily divested in all kinds of other technologies. You know, Sony's got televisions and DVD players and Blu-ray players and all this other stuff their video game consoles, they don't make all of their money just from their their camera and lens line. That's just a small portion of their revenue stream. And it's the same way with Canon. Canon does a lot of medical imaging technology, MRI machines and stuff like that. So with both of those companies, cameras and lenses are just a small part of how they make their money. And both companies have very deep pockets. So they've got way more money to spend on research and development than some of the other companies do. And, but, you know, with Canon and Nikon both being around for over a hundred years, I don't see either one of them going out of business anytime soon. And, and I've been predicting that now that Canon's got mirrorless full-frame bodies, they've released two so far. And there's a rumor that they're going to release a pro one yet, so their third body this year. Uh, we'll have to wait and see if that actually happens, but... Uh, there's pretty strong rumors indicating that they are and it's going to be a 60 megapixel plus sensor dual memory card probably even more enhanced eye detect autofocus to better compete with sony's iaf and i keep telling people it's like look now that canon's gotten into the gotten into this party of mirrorless full frame i don't think it's going to take them more than 18 to 24 months before they're completely caught up with sony
1: yeah i I, I, I see a lot of articles about mirror, I, I had a Sony, what was it, A7 or A8 or something like that, mirror's camera, and I loved it, it was, you know, small light, and, I, and I'd go to New York, and i fancy myself a street photographer, and I could walk around with that little camera, and I don't know, it just it was just so small, and I, I ended up giving it to my daughter a couple last year, and she loved it. it was just perfect for her. But I'm—I think I'm probably <clears throat> all set on my camera gear for right now, and then, um, I just probably—you know—just try to ignore all the all the advertisements I see. Yeah, I'm more interested in you know, buying another lens or two. More than a, I've got, I got three or four bodies that are working just fine now. So.
0: Yeah, I can understand that.
1: Yeah, and, and same way
0: with me. One of the first mirrorless cameras that I had was an APS-C. It was a Sony Nex. Uh, I had the Nex Six, um, and it was a good little camera. I got some, you know, great images with it. But it was one of their earlier um, crop body mirrorless cameras, and the EVS wasn't the greatest in those days. Matter of fact, um, when they were doing the 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 Nex series of APS-C mirrorless cameras. The camera didn't even come with the electronic viewfinder. You had to buy it as a separate piece to add onto the camera. So you know, when you bought one out of the box by default, all you had was the the L C D screen on the back and you had to shoot live view mode using the back of the camera. But luckily I bought mine used from a guy I found on Craigslist and and he already had the EVF added to the next six that I bought from him. So I didn't have to worry about that part. And Like I said, it was in the early days of Sony's um, mirrorless technology. So the EVF was kind of slow and clunky and um, it was hard to to really, it wouldn't keep up with what you were trying to do as well as they do these days. And the other big problem in the early days of the mirrorless cameras was they were small. I have big hands myself. Most of my bodies are pretty good sized bodies. And um, so that part I didn't like. The ergonomics wasn't that great. And their battery life was terrible. I mean, my next six, I think I, I would get like 100, 150 shots before the, the battery would be completely dead because they were putting these tiny batteries in them and they just didn't last. You know, the EVF was running, running constantly and the EVF technology was old. You know, it was the early days of EVF. So they were a huge drain on the batteries in those cameras. So Sony's come a long way with the technology you know, now that they're doing the A7 series and the A9s and stuff like that, but it was slow going, and, and that's one of the things I keep telling people. I'm like, look, the you got to look at how Canon and Nikon, especially Canon, do things versus Sony, and I like, uh, for an analogy, I always say Canon and Apple are very similar in how they do things, and Sony and Samsung, Samsung on the f- smartphone side, are very similar. Sony and Samsung will both just throw the latest technology into something, you know, a product that they're going to put on the market. Who cares if it works properly or not? And that's why you would you'd hear these stories and read these stories online where, you know, when Sony released their first mirrorless full frame camera that had 4K video, it's like, oh yeah, it's got 4K video. Uh, yeah, but it's 4K video really only in theory because yes, it has 4K video, but 4K video uh, full frame means the camera gets hot in about a minute and a half, and then you can't use it until it cools down. So, you know, and there, and everybody's been crying about the fact that Canon didn't go 4K full-frame in their first mirrorless full-frame bodies. It's it's a 174 crop factor when you want to shoot 4K video, but it's because of the fact that you've got to get the the, the hardware ironed out to the point where you can do full-frame 4K without the camera... <laughs> Glowing red. Mm -hmm. And uh I I I subscribed to Tony and Chelsea Northrop in Connecticut. They're big on YouTube, and you know, their photography YouTube channel is pretty massive. And I remember uh in one of the videos Tony was talking about, you know, the early days with the Sonys with the 4K video, and he says, Yeah, we were on vacation one time in Florida, and I was carrying the camera in my hand, walking around the beach with it turned off in my hand, I turned it on to shoot some video, and as soon as it booted up, it said it was already too hot. <laughs> so, and, you know, that's what I try to get people to realize that Canon has a more cautious approach, because to them, their reputation is everything. They've been around for over 100 years, and they're used by a lot of pros, especially sports shooters, wildlife shooters, you know, National Geographic people, and and the people that shoot the Olympics and all these other professional sports. And Canon's reputation is everything to them. So they're not going to release their first mirrorless full-frame camera and put full-frame 4K video in it and then have the camera constantly hot and locking up or crashing and user, you know, they want to have the best customer experience. So they're going to wait to put that newer technology in a future EOS R version of their camera when it's more properly vetted, rather than just throwing it on the market and who cares if it works completely or not? We're not we're not technically lying because it does have 4K video. You just can't use it because the camera gets too hot. And uh, and it you know some people just don't seem to grasp that. That it takes time for new technology to flash out, and it's and it's the same way in the smartphone world. You know, Apple's slower to adopt new technology in their phones because the technology has to be properly vetted and proven before Apple will put it into their smartphones or their iPads because they're the same way as Canon. Their reputation is everything, and Sony just like or Samsung just like Sony, they don't care. So they'll throw 10 watt wireless charging in their phones. And, oh, and then all of a sudden you've seen all these com- customers that are complaining that their phones are getting super hot or the batteries explode because the 10 watt wireless charging isn't a perfected technology yet. Yeah. Well, and it, it's just crazy. And it's hard to keep up with all that stuff. And for my part, I love the cameras I have. I've got all Canon gear. I've got one or two third-party lenses. I got one Sigma ART lens, and I got a couple of lens babies and stuff like that, but most of my glasses, is Canon. My bodies are all Canon. You know, I have three DSLRs and one mirrorless full-frame. I bought the EOS R, and I love it. It's a great camera, and I don't need to have the latest technology in my first mirrorless full-frame body because I still have my DSLR. so... I don't care. If, yeah. yeah. I don't care if the EOS R can't do 20 frames a second because my 1DX Mark II can do 16 a second. So <laughs> and I'm perfectly fine, yeah. fine yeah. with that. I do want to get into medium format at some point, but uh, I want to wait until I get to the point where I can afford to get a digital medium format. I know I can buy Mamiya's all day long on eBay or Amazon or Craigslist. I find them all the time for a few hundred bucks, but. I just don't want to, you know. I don't want to deal with the hassle of developing film. It's just too much cost and <laughs> too much time involved. <laughs> now, do you have? Do you yeah. have, You have medium format film bodies, don't you? Ah,
1: uh, no, not anymore. I, I well, I have the that that that's X one twenty, but now I, once I switched to digital, I've, I've sold most all my. I sold all my. Uh, I have a couple of. And Canon F1, so that that were that I bought back in the day, but I sold everything else just to help pay for the digital cameras. But uh, I, I think that, you know, medium formats are fun, fun format to work in. It's uh, you know, a lot depends on how you shoot. I mean, if you like you know, if you like tripods and you like you know, things a little bit slower, and, and that's you know, a good way to go and I'm not quite in that in that category I, I don't shoot that slow I mean, I can to move and shoot a little bit faster but you know I, I think if, if, you know, I had a project uh, five five years ago maybe and I rented a uh, phase one back uh, for this um deal it? And I rented the state. I had a, at that time it had like a hundred megabyte you know, image. I shot the job, and I still had a couple of days left on the rental, so I was out at the state park, and yeah, it just it sort of slowed me down. So I, I put the lens off, and I I put this I made this pinhole lens for that camera, and I went out the next day and shot with this hundred. I made a bike uh, digital camera with this you know dollar and a half pinhole lens that I had made, <laughs> and then it was fun you know then you know, it i i I like photography to be challenging and i you know, I like for the the chance to come into my work i don't, you know, I don't like you know, everything to be quite so. Preconceived, and you know, I don't like knowing exactly what I'm going to get. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's one of the things that you know, attracted me a pinhole anyway was that sort of uncertainty and that sort of the fun of discovering what you had after the film was developed. And so, um, so, you know, if you, but if you like slow, methodical kind of work and with the tripod, you know, maybe format's probably the way to go.
0: Yeah, uh, I've been kicking around the idea, and I just haven't uh, pulled the trigger on buying one yet. Uh, I do like to do some tripod work, because I like to shoot landscapes. I have, uh, uh, and I'm sure you already know because I posted about it a hundred times when I was still going to school, but I have that one uh, sunrise shot on uh, Tybee Island Beach in in Georgia out by Savannah that's been really popular and sold. I sold uh, getting close to 800 copies of that on Getty now. And um, so I would love to have a medium format to use for that kind of stuff. When you know I get up at four o'clock in the morning, I get some quick breakfast and a couple of coffees in me, and drive out. I I never stay on Tybee Island because it's pretty much a tourist destination, so it's really expensive to get a hotel there. So my girlfriend and I will usually stay at a hotel in Savannah, and then we'll drive out. And in that particular year, when I got that shot, we got up about four in the morning. We had some breakfast and coffee, and we did the 30, 35 minute drive out to the island and got there before the sun came up. And I was right there on the beach as the sun came up over the Atlantic and it was just perfect. I had my tripod all set up and I wasn't even using a full frame Canon that day. I was using my, uh, I think I was still using my 50D and uh I had my uh 28 to 135 uh, USM lens with image stabilization, and I had it set up on the tripod, and as the sun come up over the Atlantic, it was a perfect shot. And I, you know, I snapped it, and the thing that is so, was so funny about that day is it was just luck, I guess you could say, because it doesn't always happen, but the light, the way the light was when the sun came up over the Atlantic that morning, gave a orange glow to everything, and I've had people ask me, they're like, well, what'd you do to that in post-processing to get that orange look? And I'm like, I didn't do anything. That's straight out of the camera. And only one shot that morning came out that way. Just the first one I shot came out like that. I, I didn't, I didn't do a, Yeah. I didn't do a thing with the shot. I was straight out of the camera, imported into Lightroom. And I was like, that looks awesome. And I posted it and and I've sold a lot of copies of it on Getty. And uh but it's a great shot. So I, I would love to have a medium format for doing that kind of stuff yeah. from time to time. And I'd also like to eventually get into doing uh commercial or product photography. And I know a lot of times for, for that kind of work, the clients, you know, that, you know a client that's going to go out, I'm not going to get to that point anytime soon, but you know, a client that goes out and hires somebody like Chase Jarvis to do one photograph for a new product and they're going to pay them $300,000 for one shot that they're going to put in every magazine ad on the planet, you know, every magazine they run ads with and they're going to turn it into a billboard or whatever else, you know, those clients that are paying that kind of money, they usually want the photographer they hire shooting medium format because of, you know, the larger sensor, you get more dynamic range, you get more detail. Um, I'm somewhat close to that. The the people go back and forth about it. Um, But a lot of people say that the five DSR that I have from Canon is about as close as you can get the medium format without actually having one, Uh, because it has a fifty megapixel sensor and it has a massive amount of dynamic range to it. And I do get amazing photographs with it. But I just someday I'd like to have a medium format. I wish Canon make made one, but they don't. So if you know if I'm going to buy medium format, I got to go with. Phase One or Fuji film or Hasselblad. Um, I, don't yeah, I don't think I don't think
1: Leica's coming out with a oh, video is, format. Oh, are they? I hadn't heard
0: about that. Yeah. Yeah, the only problem, yeah. <laughs> the only problem is Leica's so bloody yeah. expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I know Hasselblad did the um, the X1D mirrorless medium format camera. And uh it's ten thousand dollars just for the body with no lenses, yeah. so <laughs> and then by yeah, time yeah. You, you buy a decent lens you, you can only get the lenses, of course, from Hasselblad. So um uh, the lenses yeah. the lenses aren't cheap either. So you pay ten grand for the body, and then you know, one lens is like thirty five hundred bucks. It's like, oh my
1: god. But yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a big commitment.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: really I'm just, I believe in just renting.
0: Yeah, yeah. That'll, <laughs> you, pro- that'll probably be the route I end up going, unless I hit the lottery or something down
1: the road. But I doubt that'll can, happen. <laughs> that's the only way to keep up with keep up with technology. Just rent the latest camera and lens that you want. And I, I I'm not buying anything anymore. Yeah. Expensive camera. Than,
0: yep. Absolutely. The well, the the better. The other big thing that intrigues me with someday getting a a medium format digital camera is the fact that if you, let's say you buy a Hasselblad, one of their, maybe not their top of the line model, that's 50 or 60 grand. um, But you know, what? if you could come up with the money to buy one that's 15 or $20,000 or even a used one for that range, or if you can get lucky enough to find one for 10. The big thing that I like about the digital medium format cameras is the way they release software updates for the camera. It's basically a lot of times like getting a whole new camera because they change the software so much. The medium format camera, the digital medium format cameras from everybody I've talked to, they're more like a computer than a camera. So every time they release a major software update for that particular Hasselblad body, it's like getting a brand new camera all over again. So, you know, yeah, yeah, if you're lucky enough to have the money to buy one, it's like you could buy it one time and you probably never have to buy one again, depending on how long you live. Um, I know one uh, photographer that does product photography uh, commercial work that I follow on YouTube. He's in the UK. His name's Carl Taylor, and he just got the uh, not too long ago. He bought the I think it's the H6C 100D or something like that. It'll do. 400 megapixel images. Uh, It's a 100 megapixel sensor, but the way they do this stacking or whatever, you can actually create 400 megapixel images with it. But that camera, just the body's like (laughs) $60,000. And I guess he he makes enough money shooting for big corporations that he was able to go out and buy one. But but that was one of the things he was saying in one of his videos. He's like, yeah, the nice thing about this is it might be a $60,000 camera, but I don't need to buy it again. I can shoot with the same body for the next 20, 30 years, because every so often they just release a new major software update for the camera. And it's like having a whole new camera again when you install it. Uh, Well, that's that's nice. uh, Yeah. So that that aspect of it is pretty cool. And uh, I don't know about used Hasselblads, because I don't really see their medium format digitals used around where I live. And I'm in Atlanta. But I don't think there's a whole lot of people that shoot Hasselblad in this area. But I know, uh, like you mentioned earlier, um, Phase One, uh, they're actually headquartered here in Atlanta. And I've looked on their website. and You could actually buy um, excellent condition used uh, medium format system to theirs for like nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000. And the nice thing is, uh, being they're local to me here in Atlanta, a lot of times they'll have used ones that they fully serviced and everything before they resell them. And for $10,000, you'll get the camera, you know, with the back and everything, and it'll come with at least one lens included as well. So, wow, that's a good deal there. Right? Yeah, it's not quite so bad if you spend nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for a used one, and you're getting a, a free lens as part of the package. But, you know, because medium format lenses are just not cheap at all. They're very, very expensive. Yeah. Now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your work. Um, you sent me the link to your website, and I remember you posting some of the images from this one project of yours that you call "Mine," and I really love these images. Could you share with my listeners a little bit behind the story behind how you, what the inspiration was for this project? Because <clears throat> these are really amazing images.
1: Yeah, um, I know, I, that was a project I, I started in when I was in graduate school. Uh and, and the truth, the truth of the matter is, I had, when I lived in Minneapolis, I, I worked quite a bit in Chicago, and I rented a studio one time, or studio space, from from a photographer named Victor Skribnitsky, a very famous photographer. Uh, and he had some uh, portraits on, on the wall in his lobby that he had done of the, uh, famous movie stars from that era, and they all had black, and he had them in a black turtleneck, like I think mean, Alfred Hitchcock was one of them, and, and it was just, and he shot up on him so the face was up and the, all this black, so I don't know, for some reason or another, I just, it just stuck in my mind all these years, and then I was, when I was looking for something to do uh, in graduate school, I, I, I thought about that, so I bought a couple of, uh, cutting Max, and I started shooting class people in this in my school and, and, and from the professors and uh, Just to see what I, you know, see how, if it was something I was going to be interested in long-term and then the the other weird thing that sort of happened is I I had been you know, shooting portraits for so long and I just stopped giving directions. To the, to, and to the people in front of me. I, I put him in the turtleneck. I put them on the spot. I turned on the light. And I said, "Go for it. And the thing is that people are just really used to having to talk about what to do, where to look, what to do. And I just didn't do that. I just looked at them. They looked at me. I looked through the camera, and I just waited, and I waited. And then when I saw something, I, I clicked it. And they and they were say, What was that? What did that I do? I, said, I don't know, do it for more. And they were just get uncomfortable and they were you know, and so they, they just sort of they reverted to these to little mannerisms that felt good to them that they you know, that they do every day that you know most people don't even realize they're doing. And so I, it was just a waiting game and you know, the first I would Six people that I shot like that. I really liked what I was seeing, um, so I expanded it out. And I said, "You know, this is something I really like doing." So I, I put up a notice around campus, and I had you know just anybody and everybody stop by the studio, and I would shoot them. And then I, I they had an arch there in uh, in this town, and so I, I, I set up uh, a studio there, and I shot. Well, another 50, 60 people, all with the same same idea, basically the same lighting, and you know, and then when I, I took a job in, in Lorraine, at was in the university there, I did the same thing. So all total, I, you know, I might have, I might have close to 200 people in this one series, uh, all with this turtleneck, all in the same sort same of manner, and it wasn't until I was going to have a show of them. We laid all these prints out on the floor so they could figure out which ones they wanted. But this whole project just sort of gelled together. People, you know, were not necessarily uncomfortable, some of them were, but, but then been, they just had this natural look to them. You know, they, nothing that was particularly forced, you know, I didn't say, you know, look over this way or look over that way. And so I, I really, you know, enjoyed that that whole series. And uh, and I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I thought about revising that here in San Antonio, and I did a couple of people. But I don't know; it just, it's it's hard to go hard for me to go back and read, really try to do something again that I've already pretty well closed the door on. But but that whole series was, was just. uh the way it just came together, and the people, and, you know, I had little kids, and grandparents, and, you know, uh, but when I look at it, uh, you know, I still, you know, remember some of the people, and what, you know, you know, they kept asking me, what do you want me to do, what do you want me to do, and, and you know, I just, you know, I, I've been so used to telling them what to do, you know, it was hard, you know, so I had to just bite my tongue, and, I looking through the camera, and I'm just waiting, I'm just waiting. And they get mad, they get sad, they get happy. But, you know, once I got the four or five shots, and it was over with me. They always start showing the proofs and say, wow, I never knew I did that. I know it. That's what the beauty of this, of this whole series was. And yeah, that was the whole idea, it was, right? Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't know. I, I, Still thinking about maybe trying it again, but I I don't know if there's anything new I could add to it. You know, i know, just sort of be repeating myself over and over again. Yeah. So I so I so I started doing that, that light painting portrait. You know, that was something that was different and you know and a little bit another another challenge in itself. So yeah. But I, yeah, I know, I'm pretty happy with it, with that whole that whole series there.
0: Yeah, I love this series. I love the. It, it's a it's a fairly simple basic concept, but it's also fantastic. And, yeah. I, and I love the different expressions you've gotten from the different people. And and to me, the idea of having the black background as well as the black turtleneck, so all that really sticks out of the person is their hair and their face, and maybe their hands. Is just makes yeah. some really awesome images. I've always loved this series of yours. They're great. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the
1: whole idea. Just you know, yeah, you're just looking at them, you know, it's not, you know, we can't, you can't, you don't know what, what kids uh, got a lot of money and one kid doesn't, you know, everybody's sort of equal, I mean, you know, the same outfit, the same background, yeah, it's just the same one life set up. Yep. Very simple. Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I really love the first guy that you have on your website in the series, because um, he's even got a black knit hat on. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the black background, yeah. the hat, and the the turtleneck, and and he's got the full beard, and it's just a really good image. I like that one a lot. I like all of them. Yeah. They're really fantastic images, and it's just such a, yeah, such a cool, a, simple, fun. basic concept. But it, I mean, the images are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the
1: best. keep it simple. Yep. Absolutely. Because, you know, I, I figured I was going to try to do a lot of people. So I mean, it wasn't, you know, and I was going to be going from different from one place to another. So it wasn't wasn't going to be able to recreate a, a real complicated multiple life setup. And I, I didn't really I think I was going to need to. And I, I thought I could get enough separation with this one life. So you know, I, I think overall, it you know. It, it, Met all my expectations anyway. I'm happy
0: with it. Yeah, the other project years that I I really love on your website is the incontrovertible apparatuses, and I see you got three parts <laughs> to that. Now this is yeah. all this is all light painting.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I just I get all these uh, all these kicks like that you know, and I. Uh, just like you go to cameras places, like, I, I started going to looking for tools. And uh, yeah, I, I found a, they have a place in Austin that, that well, once or two, three times a year they have what's called a community garage sale in this big auditorium. Uh-huh. And one time when I was there, this woman had the tools. And there were some older tools, but she had reconditioned them, and they were just really immaculate. And I just some of them I had never seen before, and you know, so I bought a couple and I took them home. I just, you know, I just liked the, you know the way they felt, the way they looked. So I started playing around with light paint and then I, I really, you know, once I liked it, once I saw a possibility. Man, then I just started dropping $100 bills all over the country buying tools and, and <laughs> trying to photograph them. And, uh, so I've got a whole garage full of tools that, yeah, you know, and I'm sort of done with that project, but, you know, unlike the people, uh, these tools are still around. So I don't know what I'm going to do with them and figure out another way to shoot them, I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Either that or now you're gonna to have to have yourself a big uh tool garage sale.
1: Yeah, that's what my
0: wife watches. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really love this series because I love how some of the tools are like virtually brand new, and others, you know, they have the rust and the more of the patina yeah. to them, and it just creates a a really cool image. I always love yeah, any, wondering... any kind of image that has texturing to it is really awesome. Yeah, that's
1: the way I ever and the ones that look sort of brand newish, those are the ones this woman buys and read, I don't know somehow she reconditions and then polishes them up. The other stuff, like you know, those I just bought in garage sales or just junk stores if I happen to be around there. But uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I for me, I, I think one of the interesting parts of photography I like it as you know, a surface I, I try to get as much texture as I can and, uh, and uh, just with the light you know, the flashlight you're able to get it a little bit different angles than you could with a regular uh, strobe or mono light so you know just a way to bring out more texture you know, the rust is just something I really do enjoy working with.
0: Yeah, I like it. I Like I said, I think it makes for fantastic images with the, you know, the rusty texture is really great. That's always something I enjoy. And I'm into old stuff like that, uh, probably because I spent a lot of time with my my mom's parents when I was growing up. And my grandpa Kithgart and I, we'd, we'd go out to flea markets and all kinds of places like that because he had different things he liked to collect, metal tools. He loved to collect um, hand-powered saws. So he actually... Yeah. Yeah, he worked at uh he worked at a uh strip mine for a strip mining company. He was their their uh chief diesel mechanic for all their strip mining vehicles oh, wow. and stuff like that. He did that for like 35 years. And uh, when he first retired, he made the cover of the the largest newspaper in our area the day after he retired from working for state aggregates. He decided to go out with his two-man handsaw, but by himself. And cut down this huge hickory tree they had in their yard that over the years, because they lived, my grandparents live on an S-curve. and you know, Grandpa's passed away now, but they lived on this S-curve on this um, uh, state highway, or maybe actually, I think it might be just a county highway. And people would always take that turn way too fast. And over my lifetime, that hickory tree claimed, I don't know how many cars, Um, it was down <laughs> at the far end of their property because it sat Mm, probably 40, 50 feet from the road, and people would just come through that S curve way too fast. They'd always end up going through the bottom corner of their yard and hitting that hickory tree. And so, the day after he retired, he cut it down with a two-man handsaw by himself, and then split it all up and put it out for sale as firewood. <laughs> uh, that's what he did the first day he was retired. <laughs> he did that.
1: Uh, uh, but uh, I like. I like. I was going to correct one tool. I I think I like. Those planes, I've got—I don't know—four or five of those now. Oh and yeah. I think I don't know. I don't know if there's how many different ones they are. I mean, I, but I, I really, really enjoy those. They, they, they just have sort of a really interesting look to them. Uh, so if I'm going to collect one, I think that you know, if I get rid of all my other ones, I'll probably keep those four or five and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And they just. They just
0: yeah, because they're really. They cool. interesting. Yep, they're really cool. That was the other thing my grandfather collected tool wise. He collected hand saws and those planes, and and then the other thing he was into was the uh, the old colored glass, like cobalt blue glass and stuff like that. His oh, favorite, wow. Yeah, his favorite was the cobalt blue, and he liked to collect the uh, the ruby red colored glass as well. Uh, the original, uh, cool. the original stuff, not the repop stuff that they they mass produce these days but the old stuff and that's one of the reasons why i love to go and um a big thing in the atlanta area is antique malls which is basically yeah. a, it's like a flea market but it's inside a massive building and yeah uh, we know, those. yeah and the person that runs it you know they they rent out small spaces for people to come in and sell their vintage and antique yeah. stuff and I love to just walk yeah. through a, a big multi-storied antique mall sometimes on the weekend and just photograph all the things that catch my eye as I'm walking around there. And of course, I always end up buying any antique cameras they got to add to my collection.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do that. We have a couple, there's a place, a, a town about a uh, hundred miles from here of what Houston called Roundtop. Round Top. And the only thing in that town or, antique places. And they have this awful, I think it's whatever this highway is that runs through this little town there's like 10 miles of nothing but these. And some of them are high end, some of them are mom and pop, but there's just like thousands and thousands of people this time of year head to that little town and and, and go antique and why we stopped in there a couple of weeks ago on the way back uh, from Houston and, and it's just amazing. I mean, if if you had a, a wish list, you could fill it in that you know, because there's chairs, or furniture, there's tools, it's just amazing. And luckily, right now, I'm I'm not in the collecting mode. But if I was, I would definitely head back there.
0: <laughs> yeah. As it, that's why one of my favorite shows on TV is uh, American Pickers on the History Channel because I'm like Mike. Yeah, Frank, yeah. I'm, I'm always fascinated by rusty gold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something like... Yeah, I don't know. I've just always been mesmerized by the texture of rusty metal, and I always think it makes great for photographs. Maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm probably an oddball. I I'm going
1: right? to hang on to these tools and try to figure out another way and you know, see if I can... Come up with a different way to photograph them with uh, some other technique, and I thought about bringing out my my uh, four by five and just doing this direct positive. And you know, put a sheet of paper in the in the film holder and photograph, and just develop it. You don't know, have a negative; it's just a positive. And that was you know it's kind of an interesting idea, and I might try that or or get some positive, negative you know, scare them and try it that way, but I'm definitely not going to give up on them right now. Yeah. And my daughter wants me to. you know, She just you got to get rid of those things before you die. I, I can't have them. I can't take them with me. <laughs> well, that's that's why you have children
0: so they can take care of all that stuff <laughs> yeah, when you, you are gone.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> I said, "This is all. This is That's
0: right. You get. Yeah. You're being left all of these tools.
1: Yeah. <laughs> She'll love you for that. Yeah, she lives in Brooklyn because she barely has
0: enough room for her clothes. I like this. I like your enticement series, too, with the fishing lures. I've never been a a fishing person myself. My dad tried to get me into it when I was younger, but I was always more into hunting. And uh, Uh he took uh, myself and a couple of my brothers one weekend. We went fishing. Uh, We did like a camp out along the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. And... uh, we were going to fish all weekend, and he went to, he drove into town to get some stuff at the grocery store, and while well, he left his, his line in the water, and while he was gone, um, his line managed to snag a carp, and I, re- I wrestled with that thing for like 45 minutes, and it finally snapped the line and got away, and I was like, that's it for me. I am not wasting 45 minutes trying to reel something in that I won't eat anyways, Cause I I've, yeah. I've never yeah. liked fish. <laughs> oh,
1: really? Yeah, the yeah I, I, I like I'm fish. I mean,
0: tuna fish out of the can. That's it.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't. I I don't fish. I just I just stumbled out of, uh I don't know. Maybe it was a garage sale. I bought a, a box, a fishing box or tackle box, and when I got home, it had some lures in it. So it looked like to me, it looked old and uh, they were, you know, hooks are rusty. So I, you know, try to figure out what I could do with, with those and, uh, you know, started photographing them and playing around with them and layering different things. And, uh, when I was in the graduate school, down by the coast, you know, some guys that I knew down there gave me some first, you know, some saltwater bluers, which were totally different. The hooks were really rusty. So, so I. You know, it, I've never fished with any of them. Again, I've got all these lures now in a box, and I don't know really what to do with them. Let my daughter have
0: them. <laughs> there you go. Something else you can leave for her. Uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, these are these are definitely old lures, and I say that because looking through the series of photographs, uh, there's four or five of them here that I recognize my dad having in his tackle box yeah he I, fished for a very long time um uh, he was an some of them i
1: know are, for some guys that I know are, are really into bass fishing and they and a couple of them i i had given a couple of numbers to. they said that these were for bass yeah and I know some of them are some of them are for uh fresh or salt water and those are usually the ones with the with the hooks that are really rusty from all that salt water yeah but i i just like yeah you know, I just think it's a pretty cool idea to be a some sort of designer and come up with a design something that will catch a fish and you know? You've got to make it look enticing to to a yeah. fish. and so yeah. I just like I like that that creativity that went into into all these lures and, yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. you have know, that little sculptures, and then they hang these big treble hooks for them, so yep. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think that was a fitting project, uh, you know, and the title is perfect uh, of enticements because that's just like you said, that's exactly it. When they're trying to come up with a design for a lure and, and what color or pattern they're going to use, they're trying to come up with things that are going to attract a, a particular species of fish or uh, sometimes multiple species will be attracted to the same thing. I know my dad was big into bass fishing. That was one of his favorite things to do. So I know definitely some of these ones here are definitely bass lures. And the craziest thing—the craziest thing—is one of the times I did go fishing with him uh, before the incident on the Susquehanna, back when I was still about maybe eleven or twelve, and we were fishing in a friend's uh, pond on their farm, and he had this. There was a good size bass in this pond that everybody had been trying to catch, and. People have been trying everything, different types of lures and different types of bait. And believe it or not, my dad was the one that finally caught that. And you would not believe he caught that large mouth bass with a piece of aluminum foil from his pack of cigarettes. He put it, he balled it up, stuck it, stuck his hook through it, dropped it in the water. And he that thing nailed it within like a minute. He had that thing on the line. I was like, are you kidding me? All those lures you have in your tackle box, and that stupid fish went for a piece of aluminum foil. <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. He's like, "Yeah." My dad's like, "Well, yeah. That's the thing with bass; they love shiny objects." I was like, "Yeah, but you had all kinds of shiny lures; it wouldn't touch." Just something about that—the aluminum foil—that it drew, drew its eye, and it went right for it, and he snagged that sucker real quick. And it was just so funny because so many guys in the area had been trying to catch that large bass. Everybody knew it was in there, but nobody could seem to catch it. Yep. And while there was a similar story with one of my dad's other friends that he worked with for a long time, his guy's name was Bob Bristol and he lived on one of the two mountains that bordered my small town in Pennsylvania. He lived on the Armenia mountain and there was a stag It was like a world record stag at the time. This was many, many moons ago in the 80s. And it was like a 28-point buck. It was an older buck. Uh And everybody was all over Armenia Mountain during deer season trying to get that stag just because everybody wanted the rack. Everybody wanted the rack. And Bob and his wife, their house was actually a log cabin on the side of Armenia Mountain. and. He got up one Saturday morning, went out to his kitchen, started to brew his pot of coffee, looked out the window over his sink, and there that stag was in his backyard, and he just stepped out on the back porch with his bow and shot it. (laughs) And there had been been people from Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, that combed that mountain trying to find that stag, and he walks out on his back back porch and shoots it with his bow. (laughs) Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Yep, that's what he always said too. And he had, he did. He uh, he had the head stuffed with the rack and put it above his fireplace in the cabin. <laughs> Just crazy sometimes how things work out like that. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely been fantastic having you on the show this week, Ruben. I appreciate your time. And I love, like I said, I love these projects of yours. You've got some really cool images here. And, of course, I'll be sharing out uh, Ruben's website on the uh, show notes for this episode. Definitely encourage all my, yeah. all my listeners to check out your projects because you got some really beautiful images here. Really great stuff. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And, you. Yep. And I would definitely love to have you on the show again sometime down the road. I'll come up, yeah, with, something yeah. else that, come up with something else that we can talk about photography related. Uh, and uh, hopefully have you back as a guest again down the road. I know Jill's looking forward to coming back. Uh, she was all gung ho. Yeah, yeah. She was all gung ho to come back <laughs> by the time we finished the first yeah. episode. Um, but yeah, I've, yeah, always, I've always loved your work. I never got lucky enough to have you for one of my portfolio classes. Um, but I've always loved your work and you're a really great person. I, I enjoy talking to you and, and I always enjoy hitting you up on Facebook and, and chatting yeah. with you on there as well. So, anytime. Yep. But I would In say, trailer. definitely yeah. keep adding. Never make it down
1: here to Texas. Let me
0: know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I haven't been to Texas for a while. I used to get, well, believe it or not, I used to go through Texas all the time. Years ago when I drove tractor trailer for a living, I used to go through Texas all the time. I drove for, uh, Schneider National Carriers, and I was always going back and forth across Texas, uh, east, uh, east, west, and north, south, both. I was Waco, I was in San Antonio, I was all over the place, Dallas, Fort, uh, Fort Worth, and yeah, they had me all over the place. I haven't been out there in a number of years though, and I've been wanting to go back to San Antonio, so I definitely, uh, yeah, definitely, it's uh, the happening city right now. Sure. Yep. I'd definitely let you know uh, if I do get a chance to get out there sometime in the next uh, I'd like to get out there in the next year or so at the most um, just because I've always loved Texas. Texas is such an awesome state and I almost moved there. Um, I got laid off from my one it job back in 2010. And for the longest time I couldn't find another job, which you think would be crazy in the Atlanta area. And I was about ready to pack up and move to San Antonio and then, a company called me up, offered me really good money, and I ended up staying here. But uh, yeah, yeah. I've always loved Texas. That's a great state.
1: Yeah, awesome. Austin. Awesome. Austin big IT city nowadays.
0: Yeah, yep. Uh, one of my managers that I worked with at uh, Pier One Web Hosting, she was from San Antonio. She was a really nice lady. She's like, "Yeah, San Antonio is great," and she's like, "That's a lot cheaper to live out there than it is here in Atlanta."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it, it, it was. It, you know, everything is solid. More people were moving here, a lot of companies were coming here. Things things were starting to pick all the
0: way up. So, yeah, and that that so you, guys sure the, you guys have all you guys always had all the military bases there as well.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, I there's a lot of
1: military,
0: yep. military When I was in the army, I went to uh back in the in the 80s when I was in the when I first went in the army, I went to sniper school and in those days it was at Fort Sam Houston. And uh oh, yeah. yeah, now they've uh moved the sniper school down here to uh Columbus, Georgia, to Fort Benning, which is ironic cuz that's where I went for basic and jump school. And uh <laughs> So now they got both
1: jump Yeah, we're running out now. of we're running out of space to be Practicing snipers, I'm sure. <laughs> well, yeah. it was, it was <laughs> a lot of fun.
0: I enjoyed doing it, but uh, when, I, when I was going through the training, it was tricky because one of the things you had to you had to you have to have patience to be a sniper. And so, one of the things they did as part of our training is they take you out on this range with a big pegboard, and they would inflate balloons and tack them to the board, and you had to pop one balloon with one bullet. Couldn't oh, cool. miss. And, and, of course, they didn't take you out there on a calm day. They took you out there on a the day when the wind was blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so you not only had to – it was not only a patience exercise, but it was a timing exercise as far as making sure you didn't waste a bullet because that's the whole mantra with sniper, one shot, one kill. So they wanted to see how many of those balloons you could pop. Wow. Yep. But uh, I enjoyed doing that in the military. I, I really – that was one of the things I did that my fa- – my, my adopted father had done was he was in the army during the Vietnam War. He was a ranger with the 101st. And and uh, I didn't do high school sports like he did. I did track track and cross country, and he did wrestling and football. And uh, he was kind of disappointed that I didn't go for those sports. But I thought to myself, well, wow, most of the men in my family have been in the military. So I said, well, I'll make him happy. I'll go in the army like he did. So that's what I did. was mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, and he was tickled to death with that. My younger brothers, they played football and did the wrestling part. But since I was the oldest, uh, I was like, well, I know he he doesn't like to say it, but I knew he was kind of heartbroken that I didn't play football or do wrestling. So I'll go in the Army. That'll make yeah. he'll He'll like that. And uh, he did. Yep.
1: <laughs> cool.
0: Yeah, I miss him, but uh, he was a great guy. All right, well, let me go ahead and uh, wrap this up. I still got to eat my dinner yet. Uh, We were running a little bit late getting home uh, this evening, so I haven't had a chance to even have supper yet. But uh, we'll definitely uh, look forward to having you again, and I appreciate you for giving me your time and and coming on the show and talking to me about your your photography work, because you have some beautiful images here, some great projects. Yeah, well, thanks. Yep. Anytime, just let me know. You got it. You have yourself a good evening, Ruben. We'll talk to you again. All right. Yep. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, That was my interview with Ruben Naha of San Antonio. He was, like I said, one of my professors when I was, uh, one of the professors when I was at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, online division. And he also teaches at one of the universities in the San Antonio area. And he does portraiture and landscape photography himself. And he's got some really cool projects that he has shot that are part of his website, I definitely recommend that you check it out at RubenNaha.com, and I will definitely have a link to his website in the show notes so that you can check it out. I want to thank all my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes and anywhere else that you might listen to the show, and I will see you next time in episode 19.